This is a continuation and the conclusion of Marcusa contra Marx, Revolutionary Strategy and the Role of the Proletariat in the Work of Herbert Marcusa by Craig Whittle. Marcusa contra Marx Conclusions The introduction to this dissertation established its two main objectives. The primary objective was to account for the theoretical foundations upon which Herbert Marcuse based his assertion that the working class and advanced industrial capitalism had become integrated into its governing economic and political structures. The secondary objective was to examine Marcuse's model of revolution, to explore the similarities and differences between the models of Marcuse and Marx, and to evaluate the extent to which Marcuse's revolution can be seen as congruent with traditional Marxist theories of revolutionary social change. The underlying theme of the entire dissertation has been to analyze the extent to which the thought of Herbert Marcuse constitutes a genuine manifestation of Marxist social theory, particularly when viewed against his established historical reputation as a proponent of revisionist Marxism. In order to achieve its primary objective, it was first necessary to explore the established Marxist conception of the revolutionary proletariat in order to set Marcuse's later position in the correct context. Chapter 1 demonstrated that Marxist political theory conceives of the proletariat as a class created under very specific historical conditions, whose characteristics and material conditions give them both the vital need and the necessary abilities to subvert and overthrow the capitalist mode of production. The tendency toward ever greater concentrations of wealth and ownership throughout the development of capitalism leads to the simplification of class antagonisms within society. Marx demonstrated the process by which myriad class distinctions in previous modes of production are distilled under capitalism into a conflict between two main classes, bourgeoisie and proletariat. The proletariat are defined by their lack of property and the necessity of selling their physical labor to the owners of the means of production in order to survive. Marxist economic theory shows how the rate of profit is dependent upon the exploitation of the labor force and the extraction of surplus value from the work of the laborer. The inherently exploitative economic order to which the working class are forced to submit combines with the much deeper effects of alienation and reification to create intolerable conditions of existence, which, in turn, create a vital need for revolutionary social change within the proletariat. Although the subjective awareness of this need for radical change may not reach the point of realization, the material conditions under which the proletariat are forced to live make it a class which is instinctively antagonistic toward capitalist relations of production and inherently revolutionary in character. Furthermore, the proletariat combines three distinct characteristics that make it the sole possible agent of revolutionary social change in Marxist political theory. Firstly, the development of mass production, mechanization, and rationalization in the capitalist production process has led the proletariat to a point at which they assume direct operational control of the means of production on a daily basis. 
As production units and workforces expand, the increasingly social character of work creates both the organization and discipline necessary to seize and socialize the means of production, and sharpens the contrast between the social nature of production and the private ownership of both workplace and product under industrial capitalism. Secondly, by constituting the majority of the population in industrial societies, the proletarian revolution maintains a qualitative difference between itself and all previous revolutions. All previous revolutions are seen as minoritarian and based on extremely narrow sectional interests, whereas the Marxist proletarian revolution promises to be the first revolution to have a truly mass basis and a universally emancipatory agenda. Finally, the existence of the proletariat as the determinate negation of human civilization, the living indictment of the disparity between the bourgeois rhetoric of freedom and the actual condition of the masses, puts the proletariat in a unique position. By occupying a place partly outside of bourgeois society, only the proletariat can hope to overcome class society entirely. These three characteristics demonstrate how the dialectical development of capitalism does not only create the proletariat, it also gives the proletariat the incentives and abilities to become the sole agent of revolutionary social change on a world historical level. Chapter 2 sought to demonstrate that Marcuse's notion of the integrated proletariat is based upon a complex and sophisticated analysis of the development of the capitalist mode of production since Marx's time. Alongside his fellow Frankfurt School theorists, and consistent with Marx's historical materialist approach, Marcuse sought to account for the historical failure of the proletariat to assume their predicted role as agents of revolutionary social change by analyzing structural changes at the economic base of industrial capitalism, and the role of changing material conditions of existence in ameliorating the inherent revolutionary characteristics of the Marxian proletariat. Two recurring themes, directly related to the dialectical unfolding of capitalist mode of production, provide the key to understanding Marcuse's work on the integration of the proletariat, monopoly capitalism, and technological rationality. Franz Neumann's empirical study of German industry in the early 20th century provided Marcuse with the model of capitalism undergoing a transition from its previous liberal phase into a distinctively new, monopolistic formation. Driven by capitalism's inherent tendency toward the concentration of wealth and economic power, and reinforced through the competitive advantage gained through economies of scale, the defining feature of monopoly capitalism was the growth of massive industrial conglomerates spreading across all sectors of industry. The new industrial combines locked all sectors of the economy into an increasing interdependence coordinated by the growth of massive administrative bureaucracies, whilst also changing the role of the state into a force for the active stabilization of capitalism. In Marcuse's analysis, this shift constituted a shift in the organization of the economic base, which inevitably creates changes in the socio-political superstructure. The most significant of these changes in relation to proletarian revolution is the development of mechanisms to effectively stabilize the capitalist economy as crises in the capitalist system are essential prerequisites for the formation of revolutionary political consciousness, and long periods of stability are held to reduce the class struggle into its more immediate, as opposed to historical, economistic form. Behind the transition to monopoly capitalism, and preparing the way for the integration of the proletariat, was the development of technological rationality, and the growing power of the apparatus of production over economic and social life. 
the drive towards efficiency, standardization, and coordination was manifested in the transition to monopoly capitalism by the triumph of larger industrial enterprises over their smaller, less efficient competitors. Simultaneously, technological rationality created the situation in which workers were now required to tend to the needs of the apparatus by performing similarly rationalized and standardized tasks, ensuring the triumph of a mechanical conformity to serving the needs of the system of production within the workforce. In relation to the proletariat, therefore, technological rationality had three decisive effects. Firstly, it developed the process of reification to a new level, mystifying the repressive social relations of capitalism behind the seemingly objective veil of technics. Secondly, it worked to integrate the proletariat directly into the system of production, assimilating them into the growing social power of the productive apparatus, and finally, by emphasizing the requirement of workers to meet the needs of the apparatus, it began the process of socializing the working class into its system of mechanical conformity, preparing the ground for the later development of more advanced techniques of socialization and integration. These two historical developments lie behind Marcuse's assertion that advanced industrial society has succeeded in integrating the proletariat directly into its structures of power and control. The integration of the proletariat into the structure of capitalist society is achieved in a multiplicity of ways. Primarily, the overwhelming productivity of advanced industrial capitalism, established through the transition to its monopolistic phase, the extent of its technological innovation and the underlying shift toward a new technological rationality, has enabled a significant proportion of the resulting surplus product to be diverted into producing commodities for proletarian consumption. The increasing standard of living amongst the majority of the proletariat and the continuing stability of the economy tends to anesthetize acute class consciousness and lead to an economistic perspective, whereby immediate material gains are prioritized over the historical need for revolutionary social change. As a result, former vehicles of class antagonism, such as trade unions, are assimilated into the structure of capitalism as they seek to stabilize the system and protect their previous gains. Simultaneously, proletarian politics is split by the development of the social democratic movement, whose reformist socialism co-ops the more fortunate elements of the working class into a structure of class cooperation whilst achievements such as the welfare state extend the dominion of the administered life. Finally, the culture of the consumer society, itself enabled through the expanded commodity production, succeeds in integrating previously opposed social groups into its colossal structure of administration by imposing false needs into the population, which may only be satisfied at the cost of perpetuating the repressive practices and values imminent to advanced industrial capitalism. Increased access to commodities and the scientific techniques of manipulation developed through the mass media have achieved the almost total reification of the proletariat, mystifying the class structure of society and effectively precluding the development of a proletarian revolutionary consciousness on a mass basis. Therefore, in relation to the three definitional features of the proletariat discussed in Chapter 1, Marcuse has made only one revision. The diversion of surplus product for proletarian consumption means that, by Marcuse's time, the industrial working class did have property and material benefits, which negates the position they once held outside of bourgeois society. Exploitation remains the basic fact of capitalist economics in Marcuse, 
whilst his concern with alienation and reification constitute major recurring themes of his lifelong work. The difference is that Marcusa perceives that the proletariat's conditions of existence are no longer intolerable and that, under advanced industrial capitalism, the working class have become a group imminent to, not outside of, class society. In relation to the three strategic features of the proletariat discussed in chapter 1, Marcusa again diverges from only one, that the working class are no longer the determinate negation of society. He concurs that they are the only group capable of seizing and socializing the means of production, and remains committed to the notion that the next revolution needs to be a majoritarian revolution, with a mass basis extending across the entire breadth of society. However, it is the extent of the proletariat's integration into capitalist society, the extent to which alienation and exploitation have become tolerable in advanced industrial society, which threatens to deprive both Marx and Marcuse of the prime agent of historical social change. The remaining task of this dissertation was to bring together Marx's and Marcuse's models of revolution, to examine their similarities and differences, to explore how Marcuse attempts to construct a Marxist revolution without a revolutionary working class, and to assess the extent to which Marcuse's work fits into the general theoretical schema of Marxist political thought. Chapter 3 sought to demonstrate that the revolutionary models of Marx and Marcuse are more closely related than first appearances, or received academic wisdom, seem to imply. I would contend that the differences that do arise are based upon Marcuse's reading of the changed historical context, and the adaptations he considers necessary demonstrate Marcuse's commitment to the Marxist theory of revolution, rather than his rejection of its aims or methods. Marx's model admits the reality that the proletariat, though inherently revolutionary in character, are actualized into revolutionary agency as a result of capitalism's crisis tendency, which simultaneously compounds the material suffering of the working class and fatally weakens the grip of the ruling bourgeoisie. Marcuse maintains that the rate of profit is bound to decline, but contends that advanced industrial capitalism has succeeded in managing the crisis tendency to an extent, and has displaced the radicalizing effects of poverty away from the proletariat. Marcuse's revolutionary project gains its distinctive character in his attempt to create a Marxist revolution in a society whose economic success and stability all but preclude the development of a revolutionary working class. This point in Marcuse's theory is the foundation of the common misinterpretations of Marcuse's position. However, we have seen that Marcuse's revolutionary model is still predicated upon the working class. They remain the sole agent of historical change. In the absence of a disintegrating economy, Marcuse set himself the task of finding other agencies for the radicalization of the masses, and finds, in the radical intelligentsia and the oppressed residuum of ghetto populations, two groups whose position, partly outside of the advanced industrial society, creates the possibility of catalyzing revolt, which may spark general revolution. Marcuse's support for such groups has the surface appearance of a fundamental break with the tenets of orthodox Marxism. But on closer analysis, Marcuse's position is revealed as a sophisticated exercise in Marxian revolution on two key grounds. Both Marx and Marcuse realize the importance of attacking capitalist society from an outside position, a position no longer occupied by the working class in Marcuse's time. Marcuse is therefore using the same method for identifying potential agents of change as Marx had used almost a century earlier. 
As well as using this Marxist methodology, Marcuse's use of the logic of hegemony and his emphasis upon the self-development of revolutionary proletarian consciousness are distinctively Marxist, though his rejection of vanguardism puts distance between his model and the precepts of Leninism, a distance not necessarily to his disadvantage. Marxist revolutionary theory is also distinguished by its expansion of social change to the socio-economic core of human life, an aspect of society which previous revolutions have neglected or ignored. Here, Marcuse's theory is again congruent to the traditions of Marx, though with one slight difference. Marcuse's model still stresses the need for the socialization of the means of production and the end to the exploitation and alienation that result from private property relations. The difference is that Marcuse recognizes the technological developments of capitalism has reached a level at which the abolition of toil and scarcity become feasible objectives. Marcuse is therefore more utopian than Marx, who maintained that socially necessary labor would continue, but this divergence is based upon historical developments which Marx could not have foreseen. Therefore, Marcuse's emphasis on socialization as essential to the revolution is faithful to Marx's concern, whilst his notion of the complete abolition of toil and scarcity is an enhancement of the Marxist vision of communism based upon the feasibility of a state of affairs which would have been dismissed, rightly, as utopian in Marx's time. Finally, neither Marx nor Marcuse laid out forensic details of the form of revolution, and as historical materialists, this was rightly so. However, their general theories of revolution are very closely related. The traditional Marxist form of revolution involves the seizure of state power and its use for the purposes of constructing socialism, most probably as the outcome of a violent revolutionary struggle. Marcuse's notion of revolution has suffered somewhat both from his association with the New Left and his tendency to emphasize the psychological and individual aspects of liberation. His great refusal does contain an individualist base and an ephemeral quality, but his notions of concrete revolutionary action, contained mainly within the 33 Theses and repressive tolerance, reveal Marcuse's militancy in advocating revolution and his refusal to reject violence. Marcuse's revolution, like Marx's, will become violent if it meets with resistance. Like Marx's, it will also use the power, both physical and political, of the revolutionary mass to destroy private ownership and socialize production. Finally, also akin to Marx, the totality of its revolutionary intent makes possible the qualitative transformation of its participants through their engagement in the most radicalized forms of revolutionary praxis. In conclusion, Marx's theory of the integration of the proletariat is based upon a material analysis of the conditions, tendencies, and potentialities of a concrete historical situation, a method of analysis initiated by Marx himself. I would contend that, given the social and political conditions of society in the United States in the mid-1960s, Marx would have been forced to much the same conclusions. Furthermore, the models of revolution constructed by Marx and Marcuse share more similarities than differences. Their perceived agent of social change is the same, as is their aim and the majority of their methods. Differences appear in the fact that Marcuse was forced to construct a revolutionary theory in radically changed historical circumstances. The analysis and model of revolution that he creates demonstrate his continuing commitment to the fundamental tenets of revolutionary Marxism, and his assessment of the potential for a total end to scarcity, alienation, and toil are an enhancement of, not detractions from, 
the Marxist vision of communism. Both men sought to distinguish the possibilities for a future society within the structures and capabilities of their present societies, and both men saw the necessity of mass revolutionary action in creating a sustainable basis for human liberation. In sum, I contend that Marcuse's project is a continuation and enhancement of Marx's project for an emancipated society, and one that was crafted under the most unlikely historical circumstances. His reputation as a revisionist theoretician, whose work abandoned both the proletariat and Marx's vision of liberated human life, is as unjust as it is absurd. I hope that this work has gone some way toward falsifying such unfortunate and unfounded beliefs. And that's it. It's a little different than usual. A little repetitive, maybe, but I want to deviate from the norm a little bit and why I narrate here in the menagerie. Which you can get before the rest of the worlds if you become a patron at patreon.com slash epic incredulity. Remember to rate and review the podcast. And for now, comrade, enjoy. Ye epoch.